All right, we are back. I uh, posted something on our website many weeks ago about how um, in some future installment of this program we were going to talk a little bit about the errors of astrology. And I don't mean by that the errors of, uh, you know, interpretations of astrology, but rather the fact that where the planets are in the sky does not correspond to conventional astrologic wisdom. Which, which has to be something of an oxymoron. Anyway, yours truly uh, was out recently to catch that lunar eclipse. We hope, dear listener, that you were not thwarted by bad weather, although sadly I think most everybody in Northern California was. I was able to pick in a particularly good viewing spot and, uh, and caught the whole extravaganza from the moon rise till a uh, full eclipse and, you know, to the point of the moon leaving the Earth's shadow, the umbra, the dark part of the shadow. It was a pretty cool thing, but I got to wondering about the fact that, by definition, the Earth and the Moon and the Sun are in a straight line to have an eclipse. And I got to wondering which sign of the zodiac the Moon was actually in. We were able to determine, uh, as the evening wore on, that it was in Libra. Or at least so we thought. There was a few patchy clouds, and I couldn't rule out completely the possibility the Moon was in Ophiuchus. And if that has you really confused, well, I guess it's time that we air the segment we recorded a few weeks back to talk a little bit about this very subject. So here we go. A few weeks back, somebody dropped by the house and wanted to talk about astronomy. I mean, nothing too elaborate, just, you know, your basic look-up-at-the-sky kind of astronomy. We've lamented in this program on many occasions over the years that, that people are just not as familiar with the sky as they should be. I, I've, I, I dare say if, if you point out a moon on any given night to somebody, let's say it's a crescent, uh, and, and you ask them, where, where do you think it'll be tomorrow? People don't know. They don't have any sense of that. It's too bad. But as part of our discussion, we, we got up on a, a high place and looked at um, some of the hills that are located to the east of my current location, and we're pointing out where the sun comes up in the summer where the sun comes up in the winter and where the sun comes up about now because we're, you know, approximating the equinox. Another friend sent me an email showing how down in Peru, the ancients, something like 400 BC, had worked out a, a similar thing. They, they'd taken some, uh, a small hill and put little forts on the top of it that would mark off where the sun would be, like a clock. Well, clock isn't exactly the right word. And I'm not sure astronomic observatory is either. Anyway, as part of our discussion, I broke out my guide to the stars. I've got a pretty big one. It's about 16 inches across. Uh, Mr. Miller claims his is, is 24, but, you know, I'm not sure that's true. What, you want to get into a star guide measuring contest with me? <laughs> yeah, sure, pal. But uh, if you look at the pattern of, of where the sun moves throughout the year, which is usually included in one of these guides. It's, it's very useful to telling you not just where the sun is, but generally also where the moon is and where all the planets are, because they're all kind of in the same plane, more or less. Now, if you look at this path through the sky, the ancient peoples aligned it to, well, the zodiac, which is, if you think about it, pretty arbitrary. You've got the sun up there in one given position in the sky, and, you know, you have to pick, well, is it in Leo or is it in Virgo? because the constellations themselves are just made up. That said, what you think of, dear listener, as your sign, your astrologic sign, where the sun's supposed to have been on the day you were born, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is you don't have to worry about any of the personality traits associated with your astrological sign, because it's all bunk. 
The bad news is, if you've been quoting whatever it is you think you are, the odds are overwhelming that you are wrong. Turns out the astrologers have not updated their path through the sky the sun supposedly takes, and they're off by about 2,000 years, which, which is pretty significant. And since we enjoy this sort of thing, we're going to break it down for you, dear listener. Starting with the fact that of the 365 days in a year, only 49 of them have correctly identified that constellation in the sky that you were born under. It is much more likely you are the constellation before the one that you think you are. For example, Ms. Vermillion, what's your birthday? June 30th. You've always thought that you were a... Cancerian. That's true. You're supposed to be a Cancer, but the truth is you're a Gemini. Some people consider me a Cancer. <laughs> That's no doubt true. I myself, born not too long after you, am alleged to be a Cancer, but also, in fact, am a Gemini. I believe that some people consider you a Cancer, too. That's more than possible. I don't think I'm going to read off all 49 days of the year that are correct. I'm just going to give you some general guidelines, dear listener. You can look this up if you really need to know the exact details. Anyway, I made a thumbnail sketch of how this all breaks down, and I think I'm just going to run through it. It won't take that long, and afterwards, you will be educated as to what you really are. Although, if you really think you are a, quote, Gemini versus a Taurus, whatever, then what you are is confused. Let's start at the beginning of the year. Capricorn. If you think you're a Capricorn, you're actually a Sagittarius, except for January 19th. You really are a Capricorn. Aquarius, that's what you've been told you were. You're actually a Capricorn, except for February 15th to 18th. You really are an Aquarius. Pisces, you, in fact, are an Aquarius, except for March 12th through 20th, and you really are a Pisces. Think you're an Aries? Nope, you're a Pisces, unless you're born on April 19th, then you really are. You Taurus people out there, you're Aries. Unless you're born between May 14th and 20th, then you really can say you're a Taurus. All you Geminis out there, you're really Tauruses, except for June 20th. Then you're the real item. Cancers, like Mr. Millen and myself, well, we're really Geminis. Unless you're a Cancerian born on July 20th or 22nd, then you're the real deal. Now, you Leos have the best chance of actually being Leos of the 31 days that have been traditionally associated with Leo. 13 of them actually are. That would be from August 10th through the 22nd. But as for the rest of you, you're Cancers. Virgo's kind of interesting. As astronomers have it figured, the sun spends a lot of time in Virgo. And if you knew your night sky, dear listener, you'd see why that is, judging by how the sun passes through this long, reclining figure of a virgin who actually looks more like... The letter Y with a curly tail. How they got a virgin out of that, I don't know. You astrologic Virgos are generally Leos, except for September 16th through 21st. And here's where things go kablooey. The way astronomers figure it, the sun enters Virgo on September 16th and sticks around to the very end of October. The consequences of that are that all of you who think you're Libras, all of you are incorrect. All of you are Virgos. In case you're keeping score, all of you who think you're Scorpio, none of you are correct. Those of you from October 22nd to the 30th are actually Virgos. We call up our regular contributor, Donald Rose, to inform him that although he's gone through his life thinking that he's a Scorpio, 
Not only is that wrong by one constellation, it's wrong by two. He was really a Virgo. He was shocked to hear it, but he took it well. The rest of you Scorpios, at least those from the Halloween day, October 31st through November 21st, well, you're all Libras. Which brings us to the final big mess of the whole affair, Sagittarius. Those of you that have gone through life thinking you're a Sagittarius are in fact one of four different possibilities. You may want to get a pen and paper out for this one. If you're born on November 22nd, you're really a Libra. If you're born from November 23rd to the 29th, you're really a Scorpio. If you're born from the 30th of November through December 17th, you're, guess what? The 13th constellation of the zodiac, Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. What personality characteristics the astrologers are assigning to Ophiuchus, we don't know. To that I would add, we also don't care. But you Sagittarians born between the 18th and 22nd of December will be happy to know you really are a Sagittarius. Now, we're sorry if we upset anybody with this news, but we thought you needed to know. If you're a Leo, a Taurus, or a Pisces, supposedly, well, you got a fighting chance that you really are. Those three combined take up 29 of the 49 correct days of the year for your astrologic sign. The other 20 days that are correct are divided among the rest of the constellations, except, as mentioned, Libra and Scorpio, because none of those are right. And I think we've damn well covered that fully. Anyway, we would like to forward promote the fact that the next solar eclipse, which is way more exciting than a lunar eclipse, will pass to the middle of America in April of 2024. We plan to be there when it happens, but uh, may leave the United States to go get a better view of it down in Mexico. We presume we will still be on the air in two years, and we'll keep you up to speed. All right. I don't know whether you caught our interview with Oliver Millman about the insect crisis going on in the world several weeks back, but it's a real deal. We're sad to report that new scientists uh, can update us all on this matter, noting that the combined effects of climate change and agriculture may be responsible for a large decline in insect populations seen around the world, with the worst hit regions seeing a 49% drop in numbers. It is noted that in areas where we have high-intensity farming, coinciding with high climate change, we see reductions of 50% in the abundance of insects compared to places with untouched vegetation where very little climate change has occurred, according to researchers at the University College in London. And of course, compounding this is the fact that studies are now showing that there are declines of reptile populations going on around the world, as well as declines in bird populations. And as we look for good news and biodiversity, we're happy to report that there is some. Reportedly at depths of 35 to 70 meters off of the coast of Tahiti, a rose-shaped coral reef has been found that's in wonderful condition. It's described as one of the largest at such depths, which is a little bit deep for a coral reef, 100 to 200 feet down. But... Said the researcher at Francis National Center for Scientific Research, it's in pristine condition, a healthy reef, like a dream come true. And amid all the complaints about how uh, fibers, fabric fibers and microplastics are contaminating the environment, it's nice to know that research at Procter & Gamble uh, has shown that 
Evidently, fabric conditioners can cut the leak of microfibers from your clothes washing. And we suspect that the fabric softener is probably made by Procter & Gamble. Nevertheless, these crack researchers found that ordinary fabric conditioners reduce microfiber emissions by about 22%, depending on the product. But anti-wrinkle fabric conditioners cut them by up to 36%. And apparently using an anti-wrinkle fabric conditioner and a tumble dryer sheet reduced microfiber emissions by 45%. Is this going to save the world? Well, we doubt it. But I suppose up to a point, it's good news and or good marketing. And in what has to be considered some good news, it's noted that although exploitation has decimated the world's carbon-storing peatlands, there is, there is a race on to restore them, and the hope is that you know, they'll be able to put a lot of CO2 back into the ground through this. It's noted, too, that uh, peat is not necessarily the, the material we associate with the higher latitudes. Water-soaked areas in, 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 in the tropics are considered a type of peat. Article in New Scientist magazine notes that uh, decades of draining and deforestation for oil palm plantations in agriculture, which is very tropical, have left millions of hectares degraded and released huge volumes of CO2 into the atmosphere. Devoid of water, parts of these damaged peatlands routinely ignite, blanketing large swaths of Indonesia and neighbors in smoke. In fact, in 2015, the fires reached their fiercest in living living memory. Nearly 16 million tons of carbon were emitted every day, about the same as the total daily emissions of the U.S. Ouch! But the article points out that when efforts are made to restore peat bogs, in some cases, uh, you know, putting water back in them and, and, and allowing for water to collect in them and maybe getting rid of some of the trees, carbon starts getting stored again. It takes, takes about 10 years, reportedly. Of course, countering this somewhat is the fact that a lot of peat in the far north latitudes, which contain... of global peatland carbon are showing the effects of global warming where the ice is melting and the CO2 stored in the peat's now getting released. It is noted that oil and gas industries are making this worse and that um, people are trying to be aware of that fact so that those industries can mitigate their impact on Arctic peatlands. The article notes that after efforts are made to uh, restore damaged peatlands and they note that you know you can take donor moss sphagnum moss gathered from patches of healthy peatlands spread it over as mulch over degraded areas then blanket it with straw to trap water vapor and keep the moss spores moist and uh, all being well patches of sphagnum moss will take root after about two years an examination of such sites 5 10 15 years post restoration conclude that they become a net carbon sink by then which is good news now, not too long ago, I was over at a friend's house who was watching MTV, which is definitely not the MTV I remembered from decades ago. The MTV that I was watching at the Neighbors consisted of the program Ridiculousness, wherein they dig up clips that are taken off of the Internet, supposedly showing people, you know, skateboarding into fences, missing the trampoline, dancing drunk and falling down, twerking. You get the idea. And I was sort of asking, well, what happened to the, the music videos? Well, according to Vanity Fair magazine, the head of Viacom, Sumner Redstone, found out that at one point uh, when the producers of content for music television uh, decided they should get paid <laughs> for what they were churning out, Redstone decided that they would just kill the music video and instead 
bring on board reality TV. So is that how we got from the Buggles video killed the radio star to keeping up with the Kardashians? I guess so. Mr. Redstone now has passed on and as far as we know is currently burning in hell. All right, the minutes we have left to us, we're going to go to um, some sources we used when we first started this program 20 years ago and uh, repeat, I think, in many cases what we talked about then. But but if you were listening then or peeved at the fact that we're going to air it again, well, we apologize in advance. We're going to go to Stephen Pyle's book titled The Book of Heroic Failures, which I think we mentioned in passing when our, in our, our re-aired chat with um, Gordon Uncle John Jabna recently. As I recall, I was awaiting a flight. I think I think I was like in Johannesburg or something, and I don't remember the details, but I, I do believe I was in the airport going through the book section. I grabbed something on the way to the aircraft, and I came across this book and was laughing so hard in the aisle that I knew I had to buy a copy. Let's hope it lives up to that advanced billing. Anyway, Stephen Pyle's Book of Heroic Failures has many sections. The business or politics section had a portion labeled the worst hijackers. Said Pyle, we shall never know the identity of a man who in 1976 made the most unsuccessful hijack attempt ever. On a flight across America, he rose from his seat, drew a gun, and took the stewardess hostage. Take me to Detroit, he said. She replied, we're already going to Detroit. Oh, good, he said, and sat down again. The War and Peace section has some good items, including the worst general. The book says some men can steal victory from almost certain defeat. Major General Ambrose Everett Burnside usually progressed in the exactly opposite direction. No advantage, numerical or tactical, was so great that Byrne, as he was affectionately known, could not throw it away in seconds. During the American Civil War, Burnside had 12,000 troops at his disposal. At the Battle of Antietam, he overcame this advantage by ordering them to march in single file across an exposed bridge on which enemy guns were trained in large numbers. Only later did he learn that the river was waist-deep and could have been forded without danger at any point. Two years later, Byrne planned to dynamite a trench along which his men could run in safety into the middle of the enemy camp. As the smoke was clearing, his soldiers ran in only to find they couldn't climb out again at the other end. The Confederate troops were more than suddenly surprised to find the whole enemy force trapped at their feet in a six-foot pit. Upon hearing of this maneuver, President Lincoln said, Only Burnside could have managed such a coup. We also have the worst tactician. During the Mexican-American War, 1846-48, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna lost every battle he fought, despite having modeled himself closely on Napoleon. At the age of 20, he attended lectures on his hero and for some years adopted Napoleon's hairstyle, combing it from back toward his forehead. In fact, he looked nothing whatever like Napoleon, who was short and dumpy. Santa Anna was tall, skinny, and had only one leg. He lost the other in 1838 fighting the French and later had a special burial service for it at Santa Paula Cemetery. Furthermore, he lacked almost all of Napoleon's strategic gifts. In one inspired surprise attack... He dressed his troops in enemy uniforms. The chaos was indescribable and the plan a total failure. During skirmishes with the Texans in the 1830s, he was once taken prisoner by them. But in a move of tactical brilliance, they released him. On the 20th of April in 1836, showing the calmness of a great commander, 
He set up camp at the San Jacinto River, overlooking a wood where Texans were known to be hiding, and ordered his troops to take a siesta. At half past three in the afternoon, his entire army was wiped out in 18 minutes. Santa Ann himself was enjoying a deep and refreshing sleep from which he was only roused by the continued noise of marauding Texans. <laughs> Realizing his entire army was being routed, Santa Ana didn't help matters by shouting, the enemy is upon us and leaving on a horse. How about the most unsuccessful inventor? Notes the book between 1962 and 1977, Mr. Arthur Paul Piedrick patented 162 inventions, none of which were taken up commercially. Among his greatest inventions were a bicycle with amphibious capacity, spectacles which improve vision in poor visibility, and an arrangement whereby a car may be driven from the back seat. The grandest scheme of Mr. Piedrick, who describes himself as the one-man think tank basic physics research laboratory, was to irrigate deserts of the world by sending a constant supply of snowballs from the polar regions through a network of giant pea shooters. And how about this? One of Britain's most popular radio programs is Desert Isle Discs, in which a celebrity is asked to imagine that for unspecified reasons, he's trapped on a desert island with his eight favorite records. In the early 1970s, the program's presenter, Roy Plumley, was keen to get the novelist Alistair MacLean on his program. As a writer of adventure stories, it was felt that he might fit the role of a castaway and give a gripping broadcast. This was soon arranged, despite MacLean's known reluctance to give interviews. Mr. Plumley arranged to meet him for lunch at the Seville Club in London, and they got on extremely well. During lunch, Mr. Plumley asked, which part of the year do you put aside for your writing? Writing? said McLean. Yes, your books, The Guns of Navarone. I'm not Alistair McLean, the writer. No. No? No, I'm in charge of the Ontario Tourist Bureau. But wouldn't you know it, with no alternative, the two set off for the studio. During the recording, an increasingly agitated producer urged, ask him about his books. He hasn't written any, said the broadcaster. The program was, in fact, never broadcast. And here's a long one that I really like. The largest number of convicts ever to escape simultaneously from a maximum security prison is 124. This record is held by the Alcoente Prison near Lisbon in Portugal. During the weeks leading up to the escape, in July of 1978, the prison wardens had noticed that attendances had dropped off at film shows, which included The Great Escape, and also that 220 knives and a huge quantity of electrical cable had disappeared. A guard explained, yes, we're planning to look for them, but we never got around to it. The warders had not, however, noticed the gaping holes in the wall because they were covered with posters. Nor did they detect any of the spades, chisels, water hoses, and electric drills amassed by the inmates in large quantities. The night before the breakout, one guard had noticed that of the 36 prisoners in his block, only 13 were present. He said this was normal because inmates sometimes miss roll call or hid, but usually came back in the morning. We only found out about the escape at 6.30 the next morning, when one of the prisoners told us, the warder said later. The searchlights were described as our worst enemy because they'd been directed at the warders' faces, dazzling them and making it impossible to see anything around the prison walls. When they eventually checked, the prison guards found that exactly half of the jail's population was missing. My favorite part is that, by way of explanation, the justice minister, Dr. Santos Pais, claimed that the escape was normal, the part of the legitimate desire of the prisoner to regain his liberty. 
Anyway, at this point, Mr. McMillan is expressing a legitimate desire to regain his liberty. So we're going to end it here. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll uh, see you soon. Was a perp.